We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org. <laughs> Welcome to the Jewish Hour. I'm your host, Herschel Finn, and we've got a great show for you today. In this half hour, something very special. We have Dr. Rachel Yehuda, who's a professor at the Icon Medical School of Mount Sinai Hospital. She's going to talk about things like genetics and the Holocaust. That's like really like, whoa. Like the effect of the Holocaust has a genetic effect on people for generations. This is an interesting theory, and we'll discuss that. The second half of the show, we will be talking about the portion of the week, which is the portion of Chayasura, chapter 23. We've got wonderful music scattered throughout the show, a great story at the end, very poignant. Before we do anything else, let's go right to the news. Turkey arrested 15 people of unknown origin for spying for Israel. The group is accused of passing information to the Mossad about senior Hamas operatives based in Turkey. An earthquake measuring 5.8 on the Richter scale hit Israel this week. No one was injured and damage assessments are underway. The black woman who tried to burn down the yeshiva of Flatbush in Brooklyn last week was arrested and charged with arson and hate crimes. Go NYPD Blue. A follow-up to the interview from a month ago, the Lizato High Holiday Machser, which we interviewed Sotheby's about, sold at Sotheby's for $8.3 million. That's about $4 million than they expected to get. The highest price paid for a Hebrew book. And finally, in the sport, this year's NHL hockey season, which just is underway, boasts 12 Jewish players, the most in any year to play professional hockey, and that might actually be the most in any one of the major sports playing simultaneously. And that's the news. Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the -the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital, the same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurance is accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Finman, here you're listening to the Jewish Hour. We have on the line, it's very special, Dr. Rachel Yehuda, who's a professor of psychiatry, Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. It's put forth a theory that traumatic events, such as the, Hos- the Holocaust, for example, can affect a person's genes, which will then affect how the genes work. So how are you today, Dr. Yehuda? Uh, great. Thank you. How are you? Thank you. Thank God I'm doing very well. Thank you so much. Okay. So let's, we're going to have to give some basic building blocks to understanding your theory. So you are of the opinion that things, the post-traumatic stress, you're an expert in, in post-traumatic stress, and you, you maintain or have proposed that the effect of such an occurrence could have an effect on a person's genes. Could you explain that, please? Uh, yes. I'm, essentially, uh, most of the things that we do, environmental stressors or environmental um, experiences, can affect our genes. They don't change the way our genes are organized. They don't change the order of bases in our genes. They don't change our genetic codes. 
but what happens in response to the environment is that it can stimulate epigenetic changes, which changes the way that our genes function. And one of the really interesting features of epigenetic changes is that they are potentially heritable. Okay. So let me let me interrupt. Yeah, Could you define yeah. the word epigenetic? That's a new word for most people. Sure. Um, the term epigenetics is really a term that is used to describe the way genes are regulated. So we have all of our genes in all of our cells at any given moment, but they're not all firing at the same time. They're not all working. Certain genes are turned on while certain genes are turned off. And how does the body know how to do that? It knows how to turn genes on and off based on receiving signals. Really, this is called epigenetic regulation. So this is what causes us to respond, to causes our genes to respond in a certain way. Okay. So let's so let's describe then. So uh, since we're talking and putting in the context of the of the Jewish hour, let's talk about say a person who survived the Holocaust. Okay. This person was living in Poland or someplace like that, in a shtetl, and then was transported, spent how many months, and now has been released, is living in a DP camp, is now living in America. What's different about that person then, Dr. Rachel Yoda? <laughs> What's different from a chemical perspective, yeah, from, you, if from you're an talking, experiential perspective. Yeah, if we're talking, well, we're talking epigenetics. So, what's happening in their in their in a molecular level? Let's talk about that's that's different. That's, I, that's, I, don't, I don't really think I know the answer to that. That's too fine grained a question. Okay. Um, epigenetics just refers to a set of potentially heritable changes in the genome that is induced by environmental events. I can't possibly tell you how. A specific environmental event that is in a specific person would change. Um, it's it. That's not how the science is being used. I think the impact of the work that we have done is that there seem to be changes that are experienced by um, both trauma survivors and their children um, that that change the way that many of their stress-related genes function. Um, some of those changes confer vulnerability to mood and anxiety disorders. Some of those changes seem to confer resilience. But most children of Holocaust survivors will say, hey, I've been affected by the experience of my parents' trauma. And, you know, 20 years ago, if someone said that, people would say, there's no mechanism for that to happen. This must be a result of, you know, the way you were raised or something like that, which certainly does contribute. Um, Forty years ago, when the concept of PTSD first came about, people said PTSD is a, is a term used to describe long-lasting effect of a stressor that is in the past. People said, well, that, that can't be true either because... You know, the fight-or-flight response says that we make physiologic responses to stress and then we get over them. So it's really this idea that trauma and stress provide enduring transformational change. Um, that's the concept. Okay. So you've done a study. So how was your theory then manifest? What did you see in the, in the children of people who suffered stress? Yeah, I, I don't really have any theories. Um, we started studying Holocaust survivors many years ago, and we established a clinic so that we could treat Holocaust survivors with PTSD. In the early 90s, they were an aging and underserved population. Um, no one had talked much about PTSD and Holocaust survivors. But when we established the clinic, Many children of Holocaust survivors called us and requested treatment. And at the time, we didn't understand this very well. Why would the children of Holocaust survivors 
want to be treated in a Holocaust clinic. And they explained it to us that they felt that in many cases they were raised by people who were damaged and that they felt the effects of that, that they had trouble with interpersonal relationships, trouble separating from their parents, experienced uh, intrusive images of Holocaust-related imagery, imagined themselves, <laughs> you know, when they turned on the shower, you know, would water come out and not gas? So there were a whole series of things that they said that were kind of uniform, and we wondered to ourselves, is this a thing? Is Do second-generation Holocaust survivors have kind of a set of common experiences that lead them to therapy. Again, you have to be very careful when you study people who come for treatment because they may not be representative of the people who don't come to treatment. And so we began to do studies asking very modestly, you know, is is there a greater prevalence of mood and anxiety disorders in Holocaust offspring? And the answer was yes, particularly if they had parents with post-traumatic stress disorder. And that led us to wonder about their neurobiology. At the time, we were interested in characterizing the biology of PTSD. And what we found was that, indeed, Holocaust offspring had changes in stress hormones that went according to parental PTSD. There were even differences between maternal and paternal PTSD. Now, as we started understanding why the effects of trauma are enduring and long-lasting, since the fight and flight response doesn't explain it, we were led to epigenetics. And once we understood epigenetics as a mechanism for explaining the enduring effects of trauma, knowing that some of those changes can be heritable, we measured them in adult children of Holocaust survivors, and we found changes in the same stress-related genes in Holocaust offspring and their parents. So that's not really a theory. That's just a body of scientific work that was conducted over a 25-year period. Okay. And so you would want to say that there's something genetically going on in the kids, which is a result of something which genetically happened in the parents? Is that what you're trying to no, say? No, no, I, I, I'm not saying that at all. Okay, so let's uh, clarify Because that gen then. the genetics don't change. Okay. You're born with the genetics that you have, and nothing environmental can influence your, your genetic signature. But the environment can imprint on those genes and change the way they function. When we say things like, this event transformed me, what do we mean when we say that, right? That's just an expression, but, but it has a meaning from a biologic perspective that events can change the way that we view things and the way that our genes function. And you can study that now because you can study what are called epigenetic changes. Epi means on top of a molecule that sits on top of a segment of your DNA and acts to either amplify or suppress the signal of that gene. In some cases, an epigenetic chain, change can cause that gene to stop um, expressing the protein that it's ultimately going to make. So the science can be a little complicated, but almost everyone understands this idea of being transformed by events because that's the human condition. And all we have been able to do is a simple thing, which is kind of study the biologic correlate of that very universal experience of having life imprint on us. Okay. Our guest today is Dr. Rachel Yehuda. She's a professor of psychiatry at at Mount Sinai uh, Hospital, and we're talking about the effect of post-traumatic post stress disorder on offspring and learning a new word, epigenetics. Is epigenetics viewable under a microscope? Could I see that there's something on top of this person's gene that's different? Dr. Yes, you can, you can measure this chem chemically, not under a microscope, but there are techniques that allow us to see 
measure um, physically certain epigenetic changes. You have to know where to look. You have to know the location on the gene, which is usually very big. But yes, that this this is a relatively new scientific discipline that has opened up a lot of wor worlds for scientific research in terms of understanding just about everything. Um, so that that has been an advance that has occurred. Okay. Now, so I have an uncle, and my uncle was one of the uh, top students of Dr. I can't say this person's name, Ivan Bosharni Naj, who was the founder of and discoverer of the formulator of family therapy, oh, I don't know, 60, 70 years ago, and he's in his 90s now. So he would maintain that, yes, there is a correlation between what happens to the parents, what happens to the, to the children, what happens to the grandchildren, but he puts it into the guise of communicative relations and the reason why a child acts the way a child acts is because of the environment in which the child was raised and it's a uh, if we could change the the interaction between parent and child then we would have a change there what would you say to a theory like that dr rachel yehuda uh, it's a perfectly fine theory um except that it doesn't explain what we mean by the environment changes the child. How does the environment change the child? All we're doing is explaining this from a molecular perspective. So it's just different language for the same phenomenon. When you say the environment changes a child, what exactly changes? Can you measure it in the body? Can you see it? Okay. I mean, something must have changed because the child is behaving differently. And so what we can start to do now is have conversations about what, what it means to change by the environment. Mm -hmm. Okay. What, what was, what's your interest in, in this? Why did you get in, involved in this specific, uh, this specific science, Dr. Yuda? I started studying PTSD very early on. Um, I was one of the first researchers, and it was a, a, at a time when psychiatry didn't really even believe that PTSD was a real diagnosis. And I uh, was at Yale Medical School at the time doing my postdoc. We did a study on Vietnam veterans showing that they had lower levels of the stress hormone cortisol, and that was kind of an inconvenient truth finding because most people were expecting that cortisol, which is a stress hormone, would be higher in people with PTSD. And it led to all sorts of interesting ideas. Maybe PTSD is not real. How could there be low cortisol in a stress disorder? And I was very challenged by this idea and thought maybe it's something unique to Vietnam veterans who are... Um, in a VA and require a lot of care, and I thought, I wonder what cortisol levels would look like in Holocaust survivors who suffered at least as much and didn't seem to be in psychiatric care. And what I learned was, um, in doing that study, was that Holocaust survivors with PTSD did indeed have low cortisol, but they were underserved. 50% of them had PTSD, and that was 50 years after the Holocaust. That's what led me to set up the Holocaust Clinic, and from there, I already told you how we got to Offspring. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, are you a, a descendant of a Holocaust survivor? No, both my parents are Israeli. Okay, and they 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 were out they were in Israel during World War II, or not involved at all yes. with, with the show at all. Okay, very interesting. Yes. Then. Okay, so okay, so now. Given this information, I've got a bunch of questions now, how is the treatment of a Holocaust survivor or their offspring going to change or has changed given this, this information that you've come up with? Well, that's a really good question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I think that for many people, having this kind of biologic documentation, as it were, um, makes something more real for them. A lot of people come in and they're a little embarrassed about the fact that they have symptoms, um, especially children of Holocaust survivors who are always comparing 
what happened to them, to what happened to their parents. And they don't understand why, if their parents suffered so much, they can't handle the um, everyday stressors of a good life that is not in a concentration camp where you're not constantly having to hide or flee or you don't have enough food. Um, when you realize that you're kind of carrying the legacy of what your parents experienced, right, and that in some ways your reactions might be mismatched in your current environment based on some of um, some of that history, this can be very empowering that it didn't start with you, right, that you're part of a long chain, that you're not just reacting to what's happening in the here and now, but that you're reacting to a whole community and culture and history. Um, I think that helps people. So I think this information can at least be discussed. I mean, I don't think my opinion is that these epigenetic changes are not necessarily things we want to change. They're simply records of history. We don't necessarily want to modify them, but we want to understand that we are more than just us. We are a whole history. In fact, that's a very Jewish idea anyway, um, that we are more than just ourselves, a link in a chain, so to speak. But there is something also biological in there that um, that has a certain reality. So I think I think that insight could be helpful in terms of how you really um, are treated. You know, there's there's so many different ways that people have approached this, and all of them have um, some merit. And it's just a matter of finding what can work for you. Okay, it's interesting though. It seems if I were, I am. Thank God, my all of my grandparents were in this country before the 1920s. So thank God I don't relate to any of this. But the uh, if I were told that I feel the way I feel because of a chemical marker which is directing my genes, uh, that sounds sounds like I'm kind of predisposed to this behavior that I'm coming to. That would be seem no. That that's uh, that, that's over, that, that's overstating it. You're you're influenced by many. You you feel what you feel for a lot of reasons, and you're influenced by many factors, but history might be one of them. It's not overdetermined. This doesn't predict your behavior. It's just another factor to consider, um, to just consider the context of. And by the way, some of the epigenetic changes I told you were related to resilience. When, you know, the ability to transmit information about trauma can be extremely adaptive. Maybe what gets transmitted are coping mechanisms um, that have helped parents stay alive. You don't necessarily have to assume that what gets transmitted is negative. So that's number one. But what the lesson of a Holocaust, that a Holocaust survivor might want to transmit to someone to help them survive the Holocaust may not be a very useful lesson for the for a non-Holocaust world. So, for example, if, let's say, a reaction like hypervigilance is transmitted, right? Hypervigilance is something that would keep you alive if, you, if everybody is after you and wants to kill you. But hypervigilance in a society where people are not out to hurt you or kill you will be very disruptive. People will think you're paranoid or people will think you're anxious and not calm. So biology is, it's not judgmental. You know, offspring may have encoded certain survival instincts that simply don't fit with what you need for your life today. Some things will fit, some things won't fit. Um, so I think, you know, I'm, I'm of the the belief that the ability to transmit things from generation to generation is a good thing. And all our work shows is that it might happen on a biologic level based on environmental exposures. That's all it says. It's, it's really that simple. Oh, okay. I'm glad we have that clarified. Your theories, how are they been in, received by your peers and around the world? And 
Is doc, are we going to see the name maybe in a couple of years of Dr. Rachel Yehuda receiving like a Nobel Prize in medicine for her work on PTSD? Nobody receives a Nobel Prize for theories, uh-huh. and I don't have any theories. <laughs> I'm just reporting results of observation. You know, scientists are observers more than anything else. Um, you have an idea about something, it turns out to be right or wrong, you do the next thing. So I think that that um, I think that's all there is to it, really. Okay. They're not, they're not theories, though. I think that's very important that um, these are observations, and um, they're observations that are now being replicated in other populations of trauma survivors. They're not unique to Holocaust offspring. They're universal, and the more we understand that, um, you know, the legacy of trauma and resilience, the more we can create a better world. Okay, so now let's just let's a little practical. There, there, Detroit has a uh, a, a decent-sized population of it used to be Holocaust survivors. Now we're talking about grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and this show is listened to on most a lot primarily on the net, so people out there who might have been, their interest might have been perked, and they're thinking, wow, I think that's my problem. What do they do now, Dr. Rachel Judah? Well, we no longer have a Holocaust clinic. I think, um, I don't know what they do now. I think if, if, if this sparks a need to go talk to a mental health provider, um, any mental health provider should be able to assist. Um, you know, if you want to read more about it, there have been several books that have been written um, specifically about our work. Um, one of them is by Mark Wallen called It Didn't Start With You, um, which is a, a, a popular uh, book. Um, just seek more information about it. Okay, very good. That's going to do it for us. We wanted, our guest today has been... Dr. Rachel Yehuda, she's a professor of psychiatry at Mount Sinai Hospital Medical School in New York City. We've been talking about epigenetics, the, what can happen to people and, and, uh, after suffering post-traumatic stress disorder. And we want to thank you so much for taking your time and coming on today, Rachel. Thank you for having me on your show. Okay, that's going to do it. First, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Want assurance of quality and excellence in kosher? Look for the Michigan K on the label. What's it look like? The Lower Peninsula of Michigan with a K. It's the symbol of the Michigan Kosher Supervisors. Go to their website, mycosup.com. That's M-I for Michigan, K-O for kosher, and S-U-P for supervisors, mycosup.com, and find this month's featured products. You'll find Michigan K products wherever fine food is sold, especially at Natural Food Patch on West Nine Mile Road in Ferndale. Hey, Herschel Finman here listening to the Jewish Hour. Let's change the tone. I want this uh, show to be uh, life-changing in a positive way. So we've got some really good music coming up for you. This coming up now is Aralel Samet, and he's singing a medley of Ben Sion Stein songs.
Coming up next, this is person, um, it's very interesting, he's a formidable pianist. This is an, an instrumental piece, it's just Achia Cohen playing the piano, and the song that he's playing, it's a, his rendition of Nyet Nyet Nyekovo, which Nyet Nyet Nyekovo is a real old song. It probably started out as a Russian bar song that the Russian peasants would sing, different words of course, and the words in Russian are... There is none other besides the one God, and it's uh, quite an interesting tune in that. But this one's no words. This is just the melody. So let's listen to Achia Cohen, Nyet Nyet Yekavo. Thank you. 
With the new year approaching, why go anywhere else for your holiday shopping when you can go to The Grove? Fully renovated, The Grove is located on Greenfield Road, just south of 696. At The Grove, you'll find the largest selection of kosher foods and wines in Michigan. Looking for fresh, round holiday challahs, honey cake, or exotic fruit for the new year? The Grove has it. The Grove has the freshest produce, gourmet dairy, deli, and meats. They even have a kosher bakery and hot takeout right on the premises. It's The Grove on Greenfield Road and 696 for all your shopping needs. Some things are better the way they used to be, like the crisp feel of a cool autumn day, the serenity of a baby sleeping, or the feeling of coming home after a long trip. Franklin Cider Mills makes cider the way cider is supposed to be. Its old-fashioned, clear, crisp taste reminds you of a cool autumn day. Located in the heart of historic Franklin Village at 14 Mile and Franklin Road, Franklin Cider Mill has been making cider the same way for over a century. Always fresh, with no additives or preservatives. You just can't buy Franklin Cider in any supermarket. Franklin Cider Mill is open from Labor Day weekend to after Thanksgiving from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. Come visit Franklin Cider Mill. It's kind of like coming home. Herschelson, and here you're listening to the Jewish Hour. This one actually is a very cute song. I like this one. This is oh, it, it's it's actually it's called Good Shabbos Vision. It's but I've I've this was an old song a long time ago, so I'm not sure how far back it goes. But the person purporting it says that it's a vision again, which would put you from central Poland at least 150 years ago. But I think it's older. And this is a Frime Markowitz who's going to be singing it for us.
Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurance is accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to The Jewish Shower. This week's portion, that which will be read in the synagogue on Shabbos or Shabbat, is Chaya Sora. It can be found in the book of Genesis 23. And uh, it's uh, divided into two parts. The first part is the burial of Sarah, and the second part is the marriage of Yitzchak. Yitzchak had what we would refer to as an arranged marriage. He never saw the woman he was going to marry until they said, this is the woman you're going to marry. Avraham, Abraham, sent his servant to the, the, the home country, the old, the old country, to find somebody who was more genetically predisposed to marrying Yitzchak than one of the locals. In fact, he even told his servant, listen, I'm getting old, and there is no way do I want my son marrying any of these local people. I guess, you know, racism was not such a big thing, but he considered himself or them inferior, him better, or just maybe they he saw them as not being a fit without having to go into any type of uh, disparaging Things And he said the one who fits is this girl who is his cousin. And in Judaism, you can marry a cousin. It's allowed. The slave makes the trip, and there's all kinds of stories about the slave and the trip and meeting the person and what happened afterwards. When he introduces himself, what does he say? He doesn't say, my name is such and such. He introduces himself as Eved Avram Anochi. I am the servant of Abraham. Meaning, it doesn't matter who I am. I'm not here on my behalf. I've got really nothing to do with this. And the only thing I could maybe have some kind of vested interest in this is, is that I'll get to work for somebody else's family when the old man dies. But other than that, there's nothing there, nothing here in this for me. I'm just doing it because there's something that needs to be done. And I'm not looking for any fanfare. I'm not looking for any publicity. I'm not looking to get my picture in the paper. Nothing. The Torah is a lesson book. In fact, the word Torah means lesson. It's not a history book. It's not, God forbid, a book of Jewish trivia. So one can be good at Jewish trivial pursuit and know that, for example, a Jeopardy question that Cholent is a stew which is eaten on Sabbath afternoon. No, that's not what the Torah is all about. The lesson learned here is we all are servants to the Almighty. We are all shluchim, messengers of God. There's an expression when something happens, and you don't think it could happen this way, but it's going to happen this way. The expression is, yesh harbe shluchim lamachim. God has many messengers. There's many ways in which things can unfold. What's important is the end result. What's not important is that people say, hey, we're really glad that you did the end result. So this is a very, this actually goes against human nature because people, they want feedback and they want praise and they want compliments and they want awards and they want certificates. And uh, our our guest today, very self-effacing. No, I'm never going to win any prizes for my work in post-traumatic stress. She's like, (laughs) Dr. Rachel Yehuda is one of the world experts on PTSD. And she is not expecting anything. So that's that's an incredible thing. But we see that, thank to her research and her work, that thousands and tens of thousands of people have been helped 
And that's really the bottom line. What's more important? I mean, the 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 prize that sits on the mantel piece, or the framed certificate that hangs on the wall in the office, or the fact that so many people have been helped. So that's really what we're doing. We're here to help, and that's the lesson from this week's portion. We have to take a quick commercial break and be right back. Don't go away. We've got a great story. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Hi, this is Spex Howard. The Spex Howard School of Media Arts is proud to have been a sponsor of the Jewish Hour and bring quality radio programming to the community. While much of the funding comes from its sponsors, listeners like you help keep the Jewish Hour on the air. Please send your tax-deductible donation to the Jewish Hour, 1725 Pinecrest Drive, Ferndale, Michigan, 48220. That's 1725 Pinecrest Drive, Ferndale, Michigan, 48220. Your help is greatly appreciated. Thank you very much. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Want to get in touch with me? Go to my website, rabbifinman.com. You'll be able to get in touch with me. You'll be able to find archived editions of the radio show. Um, you're probably, hopefully you're listening at route to rabbifinman.com and you'll see all the things that are there and, uh, notice the bottom tab, very important bottom tab. It might be last, but it's not least definitely the expression last, but not least the donations tab. What is that all about? Well, the Jewish hour indeed does have sponsors, but, uh, you're being able to listen to me right now cost a lot of money and we need your help we have needed your help for the last 26 years we've needed your help so please go to the donations page click on any number you like add your own number it's all very safe and secure you can make it a monthly donation if you don't want to spend like a lot you can do like a little bit every single month that's also good we have a lot of people like that so do that today and if you don't like doing internet giving Understood. Send your donation to The Jewish Hour, 1725 Pinecrest Drive, Ferndale, Michigan, 48220. Speaking of Jewish Ferndale, which is addressed as 1725 Pinecrest Drive, Ferndale, Michigan, November 8th, put it on your calendar. We will be having our bi-monthly discussion. This month it is with Congressman Andy Levin, who is sponsored and authored the two-state solution bill and come out and have your voice heard you can express your sentiment and of course that's a free of charge it's at 7 30 on november the 8th and you must be vaccinated or have shown a negative covid test within the last three days and we're still deciding if it should be masks because it'll probably most likely be indoor there's a good chance it will be masked if it is masked then we're not going to serve anything but if it's not masked then we'll have like refreshments and of course that's free of charge and that's it jewish ferndale tell all your friends story involves a woman back in the 1970s her family was at that point you would call them strong conservative there's uh, reform, conservative, and orthodox. So conservative is it's less than orthodox, more than reform is the way you could easily describe it for people who don't know. They do a lot of stuff, but they don't do everything. So this family, so they had a kid. Son, son grows up, found a woman he wanted to marry, only thinks she wasn't Jewish. There was sort of this idea that, listen, if you really want to marry our son you have to convert to Judaism. And converting to Judaism involved a lot of... Lot, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a process. The final step in the process is immersion in the mikvah, a ritual bath. I'm not going to go into what constitutes a ritual bath or why, how, who, what, but that's the last step. It's where, uh, you should pardon the expression, Christianity gets the idea of baptism from, is from immersion in the ritual bath, in the, in the mikvah. She wasn't going to have any part of that. She just thought that was so weird. She said, I'm not going unless somebody can explain it to me. And they took her to various experts and this, and she said, this is like ridiculous. Somebody suggested that they go visit the Lubavitcher Rebbe. She was like, another rabbi? Okay. So she had this, uh, she walked in, had this private audience. This is the early 70s when that was going on. When she came out, she was a changed woman. And she said, I am prepared to go to the mikvah, but I'm pushing off the wedding because I want to convert properly. 
I don't want to just plunge in the mikvah and say, okay, now I'm Jewish. No, it's not happening. We're going to do it. And she turned to her husband and she said, and you are going to become properly Jewish as well. Okay. The end result was is that they, uh, they actually, the family became Chabad-oriented and they sent their kids to day school and they live happily ever after and their kids are probably grandkids already. This one's probably a great-grandmother. But they all live happily ever after. What did the Rebbe say to her? She, she's complaining. She said, I don't see any reason why a person should have to go to Mikvah these days. And the Rebbe said, converting is birth. It's a new beginning. It's not just you're switching gears, switching lanes, changing directions. It's an absolute new beginning. It's a rebirth. And with birth, when a woman gives birth, there's water, there's blood. It's, there's, there has to be. It's impossible for there not to be. So when a woman, when a person converts, if they're a guy, so they have to be circumcised, like in last week's Parsha. So there's the blood. And the, the water, that's the mikvah. And the Rebbe made such a, a tremendous impression on her that she felt, this is the way we got to go. That's going to do it for us. We hope we had a chance to entertain you a bit. We hope we had a chance to educate you a bit. We hope you have a great week. For those people who are Klezmer aficionados, you're thinking, hey, you didn't play a Klezmer song. We're going to be backing out with a Klezmer song just for you. This is Mir and doing Mir. So you and me, we're like a doorknob on the door. That's the, that's the words, which there are no words, but it's, that's the words. Thank you so much. We'll see you again next week. Take care. Music